Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a 1,000. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello and welcome back to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan. I am Jason Padolan and today you're here for episode number 33 and today we have Dave Scatchard on for our guest. Dave Scatchard was a second round draft pick by the Vancouver Canucks back in 1994. They took him 42nd overall. Uh after only scoring 9 goals and 11 assists for 20 points in 47 games. And we talk about how that happened. And Dave has story after story after story of adversity and perspective shifts and aligning goals with actions uh, that just propelled him forward again and again and again. And you're going to hear how this man made some dreams happen. And I truly mean that when I say made some dreams happen because there was a series of mini choices that he made along the way that allowed him to play the 659 games that he did uh, that allowed him to play for the Vancouver Canucks, the New York Islanders, the Bruins, the Coyotes, uh, the Nashville Predators, and also the St. Louis Blues. Uh, Dave in 2002-2003 actually led the Islanders in goal scoring, he had more goals than Alexi Yashin, who was supposed to be the superstar of that team. And he did this on the heels and the backbone of hard work and of perseverance and of dedication and of single-minded focus on becoming the best hockey player that he could be. Uh, we talk about how he almost never made the Portland Winterhawks in his draft year and, and, and what he had to do to make that team. And then, I mean, skyrocket through the ranks to end up being 42nd in the world and what he did at Central Scouting, uh, fitness testing and how he made the Canucks out of camp the first year that he did it and the adversity that he had to overcome there. Like there's just story after story after story. And, and Dave is a passionate guy and he is charismatic and he tells a good story. And and now in his high performance coaching, uh, he actually brings out the whiteboard at one point during this episode. So for those of you listening, uh, it's not a, it's not a super long segment, but, uh, but he, he gets into the weeds of, of how all these things just made him stronger and, and, and made his bandwidth wider for what he knew he was capable of and, and how he grew his own confidence. So he, he tells a good story. And in doing so, we didn't get nearly as far as I wanted to because not only did he have a great professional career, but he went through some massive adversity uh, later on in his career with concussions. And he ended up leaving the game because of concussions, got, got bought out of this big free agent contract that he signed. Uh, and two years later, scratched and clawed in his early 30s to come back to the NHL. And we didn't even touch on that. And that was really the juice of where I wanted to get to because, um, you know, concussions are a big deal. Injuries are a big deal in this day and age and is a talking point. And and for him to show that type of dedication to come back at that, at that stage and, and to try and make another goal at the NHL, I really wanted to understand the mindset involved in that. So we, we're calling this Dave Scatchard Part 1. Uh, we're going to get up to his time in the Islanders. We touched briefly on his uh, on his time in Boston and the trade to Phoenix. But uh, there's a lot of good stuff here. And I know, again, like this is human stuff that carries over for whoever you are out there listening, uh, that you can make things come true if you're willing to go all in. And if we're not willing uh, 
to care about what other people think. And if we're willing to just to, to dive in and, and, and do what needs to be done and not everybody's capable of doing that. And, uh, and Dave is a guy who is capable of doing that and, uh, and is a very good storyteller uh, while, while, he's, while he's sharing. So without further ado, I bring you a uh, guest for episode number 33, Mr. Dave Scatcherd. All right, everybody, we are live here for episode number 33 now already. Holy smokes. And we have uh, another ex-combatant of mine from back in the junior days uh, who actually grew up just down the road in Salmon Arm from me and Vernon. Uh, and that's Mr. Dave Scatchard. So, Scatch, thanks so much for spending some time with me today. Hey, buddy. My pleasure. Anything you need, you got it. Let's rock and roll. Let's do this. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, so we get a lot of, uh, I mean, we got coaches following this this podcast. We got a lot of players following this podcast. I know you were involved in, uh, you know, helping some young athletes in the hockey world, too, when you first got out of the game. So I know that you're no stranger to that. And what we try and do here is just really cover the journey because it's amazing once I get into the details and into the weeds with guys, you know, like what people had to go through to get to where they wanted to get to, you know, and, and what maybe stood out to them as being some of the reasons why, because not everybody was the, you know, minor hockey league star, let's say, or the junior star or whatever. Right. And to get to that, to get to that promised land of the NHL, there's so many different ways to get there. So would love to start with you. I, I know that, um, you spent some time, like you left, you left home. If I got this right, uh, when you went to Kimberly as as a sixteen year old, is is that true? Is that the first time you got away from uh, under mom and dad's roof? Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Um, you know, I had this dream about playing, and I was pretty tuned into what it was going to take. And I was kind of a mo- like family boy. Um, my brother and sister were really close with me. Um, I had a lot of things that, uh, um, I liked where I lived. I, I was a small, I was a big fish in a small pond. Um, I th- had things going, but I knew in order to go to the next level, I had to leave salmon arm to find better competition. And I was hoping to make the winter Hawks. Um, I got listed, I think the year or two before by Portland. And then, um, that was my goal. So I went to Kimberly where Portland's camp was. And Portland was kind of using Kimberly as a farm system to, to grow. And Jason Weimer's dad was the coach there. And um, unfortunately, I didn't make the Winter Hawks. And I, I had to stay behind in Kimberly. And uh, I was homesick. Uh, I had billet family that was like a really nice family. But they had like a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And they never really fed like a 16-year-old teenage boy that was six foot three, 165. That's what I weighed. <laughs> Um, and they didn't know how to cook. Like I, they were like making fondue and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I was driving, I, I remember I didn't want to bother my parents for money. I was always self-sufficient and I had $225 in my bank account from working at McDonald's. Um, and, um, I would eat poutine at this one place to try to gain weight. And cause it was $2 and 75 cents. And then if I got a Coke or something like that, like I didn't know how to eat back then. It was like, $3.75. And I would drive my Dodge Omni, which I paid for with my McDonald's money. And I'd drive it down with uh, a couple of guys from my team. And we'd go and eat at this one restaurant. And like, I don't remember my billet family making me a lunch. I don't remember them really. They're beautiful people, but they just didn't know what it was like to raise a teenage kid. And uh, yeah, 
<laughs> you know, like that's my mindset was don't don't burden my parents because we didn't grow up with a lot and didn't have a lot of money and stuff. And I didn't want to call and ask them for money. So I'm like, how can I make this $225 last me like a season? Because <laughs> you don't get paid in junior. So yeah, uh, I was about three quarters of the way through the year before I called mom and asked her for money. And she's like, yeah, why didn't you tell me before? I'm like, well, I didn't want to bother you guys. So that's just the way I grew up and the way I was raised. And uh, yeah, my first year, I almost quit uh, to go back home because I was so homesick. And um, I called my mom in tears. And the thing was back then, um, as as in the Rocky Mountain League, I think they had unlimited amounts of like 20, 20 year old players. So Wayne Wemo was trying to win too. He didn't really want me there in Portland, or I mean, when Portland sent me down because they were trying to tell him to play me a lot. So I wouldn't play much. And then Portland would come to watch. He put me on the first line like I'd been there all year, which is such bullshit. <laughs> Am I allowed to swear on this? I'm sorry. Yeah, whatever you want, boss. I, I don't mean to, but it's going to come out. So I apologize ahead of time. But anyways, um, he would play me a lot when Portland would come to watch. And then if they weren't watching, like I'd go back to the third or fourth line and I'm playing with like guys like Dave Kamek and, or Chad Kamek. And I know you know some of those names. Um, like tough guys and all that. And Wayne's son, Jason, was a superstar. He's a prodigy. Uh, you know, you guys probably caught cross paths as well a lot. And like he was this big boy and he was like tough and could hit and score. He was like a first rounder and had a great career. But I wasn't a tough guy. I didn't hit. I, I was a goal scorer when I first went there. And he didn't like that, that I wasn't a physical player. So I started to adapt my game when I went there. And I remember I, got, I fought the toughest. I fought this guy named Jake Skrinka. I don't know if you've ever heard of that name, but he was one of the toughest guys in the Rocky Mountain League. And he's picking on a little guy, uh, one of our best players. And I told him to pick on somebody his own size. And he dropped his gloves and just broke my face, broke my nose everywhere. And like, it was my first fight, like ever, like in, in the hockey. And uh, I couldn't have really been beat up much worse, but I fought the toughest guy in the league. I remember like all the guys on the team were so proud of me for jumping in and helping out my teammate. And Wayne Weimer was like so happy that I finally played physical and he rewarded me with more ice that next game. So that's kind of when I started to like play physical because I knew if I played physical, I'd get more ice. And then after I fought the toughest guy in the league, I'm like, well, that wasn't that bad. I'm still alive, you know? So I just started fighting anybody who would want to fight. And, even that first year as a 16-year-old, I didn't really fight a ton. But as I started to go through junior, just because I was tall, um, it seemed like I, I had to fight. And uh, truthfully, that helped me further down the road with the Canucks make the team um, because I was able to fight and play physical. Um, so maybe that was just a training ground for what was needed in uh, 1997 when I ended up making the league with a team that was stacked with, like, Burray, McGillney, Messi, Linden, Jelena, like all they had was like all these goal scorers. And then they right. said, you know, anyways, I don't want to get off topic, but yeah. Um, well, no, no. I mean, that's, that's really good stuff because, you know, at, at 16, I mean, I can relate a little bit. I mean, I left home actually a year earlier, although it was just down the road. Actually, I shouldn't say I left home. My mom moved with me, but I played in the BCJ at 15 and, uh, and so I was living with my mom, but even that experience, you know, playing with 20 year olds, 21 year olds right now you're with men. And like you said, I was, 
I was probably 160 pounds, maybe right. Six one. I'm not sure. Right. And trying to figure it all out. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you actually being away from home and, you know, before the days of internet and email and really being in touch and cell phones. So, I mean, you feel a million miles away, uh, you have a billet family that's caring, but not necessarily taking care of your needs. And, uh, and you're in a strange environment. Like now as a, as a dad, would, would you, well, one, you mean there's a lot of adversity I hear in that story, right? There's a lot of things you got to figure out, almost wanting to go home. Was that almost a little bit of a blessing in disguise, do you think? Or do you think you did leave home a little bit too early? Um, I'll finish the story. So I call home and I'm in tears. And like a lot of the 20-year-olds, they're at the end of their kind of career. This is their last shot. So they want to play a ton. I'm there as because Portland said I was supposed to be there. So like they didn't make life easy on me. Like it was, I had a couple guys looking out for me, a couple older guys. And then the rest were kind of like, not the greatest guys. And I couldn't believe these guys would try to undercut me or like bully me basically, or make me want to quit out of jealousy. Or I don't know, like whatever. Right. And I couldn't believe people would be that. I was so naive. Like I really had no idea how pro hockey kind of starts there. Uh, what that's like. And I just believed everyone was my friend and da, 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 kumbaya. And it wasn't like that. And I called mom and dad and I said, you know, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. I don't know if I can last. The guys don't like me. The coach is hard on me. Uh, I don't feel like I fit in. They're all older than me. Trevor Schof was the only other 16 year old. And then the rest of the guys were like old. So um, we had like the oldest team in the league. So they weren't making life easy on me. And my mom and dad were so awesome. And my mom goes, you know, your bedroom's still here. All your friends are still here. Your brother and your sister miss you. You're more than welcome to come home. We miss you too. But since you're four years old, you told us that you would do anything to make the NHL. And you would, you have, you've sacrificed, you've trained harder than we could ever imagine. Like, wouldn't you feel sad if you gave up now and like, missed your chance like this is like a stepping stone this is a building block for you and uh it's up to you though you can come home if you want we'll come get you and like that day was a tipping point in my life and i've had multiple of those where it's like either we go all in or or we're done or we go do something else and like there are multiple points where that like bag certain i'll tell you some really cool stories um like it's almost like this decision that opens up and the universe goes, okay, you do want it. Like you will die on the cross. You will do whatever it takes to make it. Like I made a commitment that day that I would do, if I was going to do this, I was going to do it like all in, no looking back. If I played 10 years in the minors, I was doing it. Like that day I made that decision and uh, thank God I did. Um, it was weird. Uh, Almost after I made that decision, things started to bounce my way. I started to get some loose pucks and pucks would go in the net and I'd stay later and I'd get there earlier. And like, I just committed my whole life to doing it. And when I harnessed all 100% of my energy at that goal and it was, and I wasn't thinking about back home and I wasn't thinking about the bullies and I wasn't thinking about these guys that didn't like me or, or the coach, I just focused on, you know, screw everybody. Like I'm all in, man, I'm going for it. I'm not going to be stopped. And if I don't make it, so be it. But like, I'm giving every ounce of my soul and my being to it. And like that day, I believe 
changed the whole course of my life. I think there was another path for me that didn't include all of this and um, all these jerseys behind me. Right. So, you know, it's crazy. That is crazy. Which, I mean, I totally, my, my mind goes in a couple places there, like that we do have a choice, you know, like you mentioned, you know, there's that, there's that fork in the road and, and we have options. We always have options in front of us. And sometimes it might not be the easy one. Sometimes it might not be the hard one. You don't necessarily know which one the right one is, but there is a choice to be made. And, and then everything else kind of, I don't know. It's like, it's like that meaning that you're giving stuff, right? So now all of a sudden, instead of these guys being jerks to you and assholes and making your life miserable, now they're actually the fuel to the fire of you're going to show your persistence and your resiliency and you're going to find a way to get through, you know? So they're almost like giving you a gift by being like that because now you've repositioned what that experience means to you. And uh, it's a powerful choice. And when guys get it, it's like, it's, it's crazy. Is, is that, is that kind of what you're saying there? Well, yeah. Like, but at the time it didn't feel like that. But right. as I look back on my whole life, like it was all perfect and it was all training ground. Like if you look at whatever, okay, so for all the young guys out there or the coaches who are dealing with young guys, like if you're looking at what you're going through right now as your circumstances, and this is why this is like, this is why I'm not giving the ice hammer, this is why I'm not going to make it, or this injury happened, and like whatever, we can go forever on those, on the what ifs, right? But if you can change the observer that's like looking at the situation and this has happened over and over and over in my career, like, thank God I had Mr. Weimer that didn't really give me any breaks and made my life hell. Because when I had my Keenan later on, I would have folded like a cheap tent if I didn't have to like deal with a tough coach or a coach that didn't want to play me. Like I had to play so freaking good to make him have to play me. Like it, like, if they don't want to play you, play so good that they have to play you. Like, screw them. But if you fold in, like, a cheap tent or woe is me or, like, it, there's no energy in that. So you're right. Like, I did use it as fuel. And I did use it as, like, if this is an obstacle that I have to blow through, jump around, go around, go under, go over to get to the NHL, like, I'm going to do it. And I overcame him. Then I overcame Mono during my draft year. And then I overcame hollow heels after I was drafted and they said I might not ever play hockey again. And somehow after two weeks of training, I was playing a game in Japan for the first NHL game with the Canucks versus the Ducks, like miracle, right? Like I had these over and over and over. I got traded from Vancouver to the Islanders who were owned by the league and they were mathematically eliminated by playoffs by December 23rd. And I'm like, what kind of dump did I just land in? You know what I mean? Like, I got traded from Boston and then uh, I bought a brown across from Tom Brady. And then I got shipped after 11 games or 14 games or something to the Coyotes who once again were rebuilding. And like, I mean, my whole career, it was like these like punches in the face. And it's like, you just can't get any traction, but I never stopped, man. Like I wanted to stop like thousands of times. Didn't, but the, the calling was so much stronger for me that like, it didn't matter if my legs were on fire. It didn't matter if I was puking during the bag. It didn't matter if I had broken bones in my body, I wasn't going to let somebody else take my job. And like, that's the kind of, when you are that much committed, like it's almost like the dark forces of the universe just get out of your way. And they say like, we're not stopping that kid. Like 
he's making. Let's go pick on somebody over here that's not as committed or somebody here that's halfway in or somebody here that's like got a, that aren't quite certain that they're, they're all in. We could just chop those guys in half and then like, we'll end all their careers, but this guy's not going to be stopped. It's like, <laughs> right. get away. you know, yeah. it's crazy. Listening and you mean you didn't, you weren't necessarily telling stories, uh, of hazing, but I mean, I, I grew up as you know, I mean, we're only two days apart actually in age. Uh, so wow. we've been through the same, the same ringer in that environment there in the, in the KI and you, and you have a, you know, you have a coach that maybe doesn't like you and you have these older guys and you're one of two 16 year olds and you're getting picked on, you know, this day and age, as we're, as we're recording this, you know, I mean, a lot of these hazing things have been coming out, you know, in, in, in the public, you know, and, and how the league and how hockey in general wants to get rid of, you know, whatever, mean coaches and, and, and bad, bad people in the game, which I 100% agree with, by the way. The interesting side of that is, though, it, it, it did help build who you are in a weird way, right? And, it, and I look back on that stuff, too, that I did, and I was like, no, it's not really right. You know, I mean, it's not right, but there is something about it that actually galvanizes you into a belief of, like, you know... I, I'm willing to do something here that maybe other guys aren't willing to do. And I, I don't know how we, how you find both, like how, how, how they both, you know, how one doesn't exist, but you still get that belief, I guess. But c- can you speak to that at all? Like, did you, do you think that that was, uh, you know, that it ended up kind of helping you in some weird way, even though it wasn't maybe something you'd wish your son to have to go through? Well, as far as the rookie hazing goes, um, my experiences weren't great. I don't really get the point of them. Like yeah. I, I was captain of a lot of teams and I never, I, we had teased the rookies or we would like bust their balls or make them do something silly. But like, as far as like the mean stuff or like whatever. And I mean, I don't even really want to get into it, but it's like, you know, in Kimberly, one of the things they did is they locked us all in this bathroom, like six, how many were there? five rookies and a couple of them were older um, in this bathroom, like naked for like two and a half hour bus ride. Um, like, okay, it's funny for like a second, but like, what's the point really? One of the guys ended up punching out the window cause it was so hot in there. And then we all got in shit and had to pay for the window of the bus. Like, I mean, it's just stupid. Like right. it's, it, it's, I don't really get the point of it in yeah. Portland. There's other stuff. Like, I mean, I was proud to pay my rookie dinner in the NHL. Like I was glad to be part of the club. Like how many guys would die to, you know, pay a $20,000 dinner. Um, Like there was only Matthias Olin, myself and Burt Robertson and Burt was just up and down guys. So me and Matthias chopped a lot of that at the time I was making like 275,000 Canadian. Um, so my checks weren't that big and my credit card only went up to five grand Canadian. So I couldn't even pay the bill. Mark Messi had to pay my bill. And then I just gave him my first like paycheck or two in the NHL to pay for the dinner. So, you know, like, um, but I was proud. And then obviously I played for, you know, a fairly long time and I got all those dinners paid for me from the rookies. Now, like, you know, people could, whining complaining so that money could go to charity or whatever. And that's a valid point, but there's a certain initiation process where like you do it once and then you're in the club and I'm all for like rookie, like I'm all for that kind of stuff, but the whole 
naked stuff and taping guys together and doing all this weird, like, I just don't get it. And yeah. I don't think it has a place in the game. Yeah. I think you could do like cool, cool, other fun stuff that wouldn't be so de- degrading or whatever. So, you know, I'm all for initiation as long as it's like inclusive and like building. I don't, I don't get the point of like degrading people. That's never been a thing. Even when I was captains of teams, I never ever wanted my rookies to to feel degraded. That's just one of the worst things you could do to a human. Yeah, because you just don't even feel a part of it. And that is, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. It wasn't where I was going with like, you know, the carrying of the bags and the cleaning the room or the unpacking of the bus or like, the, oh, you know, like that kind of great. stuff. I think there still does have a little bit of a place, you know, that you can oh, do yeah, that no. stuff and you got to earn your way and earn your keep. Um, but I'm with you. Yeah, I mean, all that, all the other stuff is just, yeah, I mean, foolishness really. And, and no one should have to go through it. But, uh, and I was fortunate too, just even in Spokane, we had good veterans. Or I don't know, I don't know really how, right? How some cultures get affected by that. I, I do think it's probably, what some of these other guys have gone through and now they feel, you know, vindicated or whatever that they can do it to somebody else. But we, we, I never had a bad experience in Spokane. And, and, and I think because of that too, you I mean, as you become in that leadership role, like you said, you I mean, you don't have the other kids do it either, you know? So it's a, it's a, it's a vicious cycle if you're in the wrong spot and it can also be a great cycle if you're in the right spot. And we never really had to go through much of that, but uh, talk about that first year in, in Portland. So, I mean, you have this tumultuous year, you're in Kimberly, you're going through all this stuff. You kind of find this, this tunnel vision focus for what it is you want to do. You get re, you know, reinvigorated with, with the dream that you want to chase. And then you have the drafter. You mentioned Mono. I mean, I was just looking at your stats. And to me, it's interesting because I don't, I mean, obviously I can't remember every guy that year, but we had the same draft year. And, you know, 20 points in 47 games and nine goals isn't always necessarily a second round selection, you know? So that was an interesting spot being a rookie in the year and to go that high. Can you talk us, talk me through or talk us through that year and how, how that yeah. transpired into a 42nd overall choice? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And I mean, we're, we're going to be on this podcast a while because like the, these stories aren't short, but it's like, I had um, one of those tipping points again, um, I had a decent camp with Portland in Kimberly the next year. And then they brought down a bunch of guys and they bring like five extra guys down to the States to try to make the team. And they sat me out the first game against Seattle in Seattle. So I'm like, Oh, this isn't good. Like I didn't even make the opening lineup of the season. And uh, they even spelled my name wrong. It said scratch hand on my warm up Jersey. And uh, all the guys on my team were making fun of me. So I took it off before warm up. And then all the guys on Seattle were like, Hey, looks like you're going to be around a long time. Fuck wad. Like you don't even have a name on your Jersey. So that's like really good for a 17 year old's confidence. Right. So the next day we have back to back. So we go back to Portland and we have a morning skate, pretty hard morning skate, actually about 45 minutes an hour. Cause it's the start of the season. We're trying to condition guys. And then practice is over. I'm shooting pucks and stuff. And they go, sketch. And they name off like five or six of us, okay? And come over here. And Mike Williamson was the assistant coach. And Willie brings us down. The head coach leaves. GMs are gone from the stands, like everything. So it's just Willie and six of us. He goes, okay, guys. Um, we're going to do a little skate, a little conditioning. I'm like, okay. It's like far end back. So now there's six of us. I'm still not on the team. I'm trying to like prove myself. So I'm like, boom, far end back, right? I'm the first guy back. And one thing that I always took care of in my life, and um, Tim Hunter gave me this advice years later, but I'll circle back to it. Hunt's 
uh, I was the, after my draft year, I went up to Vancouver. I know I'm bouncing around, but I went up to my um, to watch the Canucks on their playoff run. And Tim Hunter was sitting out a game during the playoff run in 94. And uh, I said, Mr. Hunter, like, I'm just a draft pick. Do you have any advice for me about my career? Like, I want to make it. And he goes, kid, the only thing you can ever control in this game is your work ethic, how bad you want it, and how good a shape you're in. He goes, you can't help it if a coach doesn't like you. You can't help injuries. You can't help anything. But if you're taking care of you, and this is always ready to go, and you're the hardest worker on the ice, you're going to have a hard time not letting you in the league. And I never forgot that. So anyways, reverse back to when I'm a 17-year-old. And we're in this bag skate. I'm far end back. And we get back, and the guy's like, Sketch, what the fuck are you doing? Slow it down. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, we're going to be out here a while. And I had this, like, decision to make. And I could fit in with a group. We could all skate together. You know the one where you're long striding it out and everyone's working so hard. And it's it's not really real. You're kind of holding back a little bit because you know you're saving it, right? You're saving it for the long work. And this voice is telling me, like, no, like, go. And that's not a good way to make friends, right? But at that moment, I said, I'm going to bury these guys. I'm going to show them. I'm going to show this assistant coach, at least, that I deserve to be here. And every line, every – it was the hardest bag skate I ever did in my career. Okay, we were out there for over an hour, an hour and ten minutes just skating. The ice is crappy. Um, whatever guys are leaning over the boards, puking, like every guy puked that bag skate. And I remember like almost by the end, I was kind of like almost lapping these guys and like far end back, blue line back, red line back. And I was just like, and I just kept up and my legs were just frying. Like, I'm like, Oh, like, but I gave every single ounce of energy I had to that bag skate. Right. And it's over. And we're all laying on the ice. We've got our helmets off. We're laying on the ice and the cool, you know, ice is against their necks and we're laying there and I'm like, man, good job, Dave. Like I'm talking to myself, I'm like he left everything out. And the other guys aren't even really talking to me because it kind of made them look bad. Well, Willie comes up to me and goes, sketch, come here. And I'm like, what? He's like, you're going tonight. And I'm like, what? I'm like, I can't go. <laughs> My legs are on fire. I just puke. I, I can't play tonight. And he's like, yeah, we got one spot. And that skate was to see who played tonight. And I'm like, holy crap. Well, he's like, go get go get an ice bath, go do something, and then go home and sleep, and then get back here because you got a game to play. I'm like, holy crap. I go home, I have my nap, I come back, and four out of the six guys sent home, gone. And I didn't know the GM was up in the rafters watching. I didn't know the coach was up there, and this was a test. And they were trying to see who would quit. I had no idea. I was doing it for me and because it was the right thing to do. And because I needed to show myself and those other people that I deserve to be there. I didn't take my foot off the gas. I wanted to every, every skate I wanted to. And that was another tipping point in my life where I could have been on that bus back home. If I just would have tried to like play it safe and do make my friends like me. Like I'm telling you, man, it's, I have like hundreds of these stories where it's like, man, like if I didn't do that, like that, my whole life would be different. And that is really, really wild. And I like the fact that you tie that together to the 
to the judgment of others, you know, like the, there's, there's two barriers there, you know, one, I, I don't think that the common fan or, you know, the non-professional athlete listener understands like that pain threshold of, you know, going past your limits with the body, you know, that, that, that's, that's hard to do. I mean, there's a, there's a mental element to that, that, that a lot of people just can't get past, you know, and, and I, and I, I can definitely relate to that. And that was one for me, that I didn't have a problem with. Like, I love that actually. Like I really enjoyed that aspect of being a hockey player, but mm-hmm. I don't think I could be that guy, not at that age that you said that, you know what, I'm not going to fit in. I was really worried about whether the guys liked me or not, mm-hmm. you know, whether, whether I was one of the boys right. and, uh, and yeah, like now to like also fight through that pain and I'll also fight through the peer recognition and possibly, possibly the ost- ostracization, right. Of like not having these guys like you, um, and doing the right thing in the right moment, man, that's, that's really, really impressive because that's a, that's a hard one to, to overcome a lot of times. Um, did you feel, I mean, obviously you're in the lineup and you, and you got what you wanted. Did you feel any kind of reverb? You said four of those guys were gone. Like, did you, did you hear any, like, do you get any cat calls for being, I don't know, whatever, a try hard or whatever you would want to call it? Did you ever, did you ever have any issues with that? No. And it's cause it became my standard. Like if it's a one-off, right? Then, then you know somebody's put on a show. But if that becomes who you are, the next year I was the captain of the team. Like, think about it. How does that happen? Right. How do I get drafted forty-second overall in the world when I didn't even get allowed to play the first game, and I was almost on a bus heading home the next game? And then fast forward seven months later, and I'm standing on a stage, and I'm called in the second round. To the Vancouver Canucks. How did it happen? Like, talk, talk, walk me through that year. So you barely make the team. You miss the first game. You show the coach what's up. How'd you show the hockey world what was up? Yeah. Well, I, I want, I want to. Sh- can I coach here for one sec? I'm going to show like something. I, I got a whiteboard over here. It's just hang on one second. Yeah. Hang on, hang on. Okay. Because I feel like this is really important for people to get. So hang on. I'm coming. You're going to laugh. Don't laugh at my whiteboard. Okay. Hang on. Hang on. Okay. Hang on. Is it big enough for you on the whiteboard? Okay. You can see so it. I know that you can't really uh, can see this exactly, but here's what I want to make a point of, okay? So before that bag skate, this was my this was my threshold for how far I could push my body. Okay. So just for those who aren't watching with video, we got a circle on the whiteboard now. Okay. Now this bag skate was so hard, and I pushed myself beyond my limit that I had a new reference point for what's possible. Right. So now my circle gets a little bigger, right? Yep. And then the next thing where I have to overcome mono, right? Like, how the hell do I do that? I went from 163 to 147, something like that. I had to rebuild my whole body my whole life. I had to overcome this mono thing and keep training. And I started with this, right? Yeah. I don't want to have the hollow heels. I have to overcome this. Like, sooner or later, each one of these, like, moments in time that you think you're screwed, it expands your capacity so that you're like, well, I've already been through that. I've already been through the tough coach. I've already been through the injury. I've already been through the health. I've already been through the bullies. I've already been through the haters. Each time your circle and your capacity to do amazing things, it gets expanded. 
So then you have a reference point and that becomes the new standard. So it's like this new place of being and you're like, well, shit, here I am again, trying to make the Canucks. I'm the last fucking cut. I'm in Japan. I missed the first game. And ironically, Mike Sillinger's ankle gets sliced after pregame skate for game two. And now they need me. I've already been here. Exactly the same situation happened with the Canucks in in uh, 1997 as happened with the um, Winterhawks in 94, 93, 94. Like identical. And I knew it because I've already been through this. I was on the outside looking in. And now I have the capacity. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this game. I've already done this. I've already beat it. I already beat it once and I'll beat it again. And now I can beat it every single time it shows up. So like those points in time, we, when we get pushed past our max, be grateful for it because now you can do something you never knew you could do. When you're scared beyond your limits and you overcome that fear, you can do it again. And sometimes it's just like doing it with your eyes closed, scared out of your freaking mind, like terrified. You don't know how it's going to work. You don't know if you're going to live or die. Like it's literally like that kind of feeling and you do it like, oh, that wasn't bad. Okay. I think I can do that again. Right. You know, um, those moments will come up for you your entire life, whether you're in hockey, whether you're a coach, whether you're in business, those moments, you know, whether you're in the COVID, whether you're in financial hardship, relationship, if you can overcome those moments, it makes you so much stronger and it gives you another arrow in your quiver where if you have to pull it out with your back against the wall, you know you can. Yeah. And people ask me, like, how do you have this confidence to go and do this coaching business now? Or how do you have this confidence to go and launch these other businesses? Like, it's it's a belief in myself that when my back's against the wall, I'll figure it out because I've done it over and over and over again. And it's so nice to have that because that gives you certainty during uncertain times. That's when like the whole game changes is if you can figure that game out is, is how to thrive in uncertainty when you have you, when you don't know the answer, you don't know how it's going to work and yet you do it anyways. That's like, those are like when you grow. Well, that's real confidence too. Right. So like there's the confidence that you get from actually getting the result, you know, that you want, whatever that may be, a couple goals in a game or something, that feels good, that's confidence. But before you get into that game, how do you have the confidence if you've never scored two goals in that league, right? And and that's the kind of confidence you're talking about. And, and you know, I want to go back to the draft a little bit, but I will, I will segue into what you're talking about because I know you are a parent now, as am I, and I think there's a lot of hockey parents out there listening that they don't like when things aren't going good. You know, like they don't like when a coach – isn't putting their kid on the ice. So they don't like when their kid doesn't make the team or whatever the case may be. And they want to smooth the path out, you know? And, and I, I always, I mean, it's, it, I just think you're not doing anyone any favors. Cause like what you just spent five minutes talking about was that every time you had a problem and you found your ability to solve it, that is what made you stronger. And that's what made you grow. And I think as parents, we have to remember that that is a key component to growing our kids' confidence and their resiliency and, and all these great things that are make them high performers. Yeah, I, I, you said it really well. Um, you know, if we're doing all the lifting for our kids, they don't get a chance to build any muscle for themselves. That's it. They need a chance to be scared. They need a chance to overcome. Yeah. Like, how do you get better at it if everybody's doing it for you all the time? Like, I don't, 
and trust me, I've done this as a parent myself. Like I'm not a perfect parent. I got three kids. I got a 13, 11 and 10 year old. Okay. Like, and I want to give them all the things that I never had in my life. Right. I didn't grow up with a lot, but I had to take a step back and go, let him figure it out on his own. You know what I mean? Let him figure this out. This is like a, a test for him. Is he going to quit or is he going to push through? And the more times that they have this, this chance for them to expand, the more capacity they have and the more confidence they get. I, I, I do these challenges and stuff and it's called the get your life together challenge. And like literally on the intake form, like we're going to have thousands in this next one that I'm doing and I'm reading the intake forms. And a lot of people are like, I'm like, what would you like to get out of this challenge? Like more confidence and confidence just comes from doing stuff. Like how do you overcome? How do you get confidence from doing? You'll never get confidence from not doing. Cause how do you know if you got it figured out or not? You only get confidence from doing. So do try play. It's the only way to grow is like if, if, if you sit on the sidelines, there's no confidence building there. If you don't work out, there's no muscle building. It's just flat. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing your time. And once again, thank you for all of you who are doing your part in promoting the uh, the pod, the Up My Hockey pod. We are into the top 50 in Canadian hockey podcasts, which is saying a lot considering the youth of this podcast. We're only 33 episodes in and we're already uh, among some pretty cool and some big names in, in, the, in the business. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. Please continue to review. Please continue to subscribe uh, to the pod and also share and talk amongst your friends. There is a there is something cool that's happening. We're get, gaining gaining a lot of momentum here, and, and it is because of you, the you listeners that that choose to spend time with us every week and and choose to share the episodes. So uh, once again, please review, please rate, um, please share. Uh, every review counts, and uh, it means that more people are going to be able to listen. So thanks again, and we'll get you back to the uh, conversation with Dave. Yeah. So anyway. As a parent, I mean, yeah, as a parent and as a coach, I know you're in the coaching world now, you know, I mean, uh, on individuals and on a group level. Uh, you mean, when I'm saying, like, let, like don't pave out the, the – don't, you know, cut all the grass down for them and make the, the, make the roadway smooth, I think you, you would echo this in saying, like, I believe in providing people with tools. Like, I want – the, the athletes I work with understand how to overcome, but you don't want to get rid of the obstacle, right? I mean, like finding the tools on your own can be a little bit hard. You want to give them the resources, but then let them use it, right? Let them put them into play. Let them see how it works for, for them. And I think that's an important part of it. Um, when it comes back to the draft, though, I still like, I want you to connect the dots for me because, yeah, you know, the nine goals and 11 assists and 20 points, like I, what I think and what I maybe I'm seeing here is that, yeah, okay, definitely they saw a guy in the ice that was willing to do some things. You know, there had to be a, a, a physical skill set there that the Vancouver Canucks saw. But I think with you wearing the C next year, there has to be somebody going to bat for you on the phone line when they call and ask about you saying, hey, man, this guy's got some other guys don't have. You know, I, to me, I, I see something happening outside of the hockey physicality realm that is getting you uh, the recognition to go 42. Would you agree with that? Um, yes and no. And, and, and obviously, yes, people went to bat for me, and I'm very grateful for that. But I'll tell you why it jumped so much. 
So I'll go through that year. So I start off the year and I'm playing on the fourth line and I'm just kind of trying to stay on the team. And then um, we do this road trip out to Brandon, Manitoba, which is a 24 hour drive from Portland. And I'm sitting beside Jake Deadmarsh, Adam Deadmarsh's brother. I can't sleep. Um, I just kind of get run down and we get to Brandon and we play, we play all the way back through Saskatchewan and come back. And on the end of that uh, ride, Ken Hodge, the GM, who's a scary man, he had like this um, blind eye and uh, looked over here and like he, he had his big hands and he calls me up to the front of the bus. I was a rookie, so I wasn't too far away. And he goes, Scotch. Sorry for cursing. Earmuffs, kids. I said, what the F is wrong with you? You are awful this week. And I said, I'm not sure. I said, I have no energy. I feel like I don't feel like myself. Something is wrong. Something's better wrong, better be wrong with you, or you're going back. You're, you're, we're sending you, like, we're cutting you, whatever, like threatening me, you know? And I sit on the, and I'm like, I'm in my seat, I'm almost in tears. And I did, I felt awful. And I get back, and my throat is swollen shut, and my spleen is four times as big as it normally is. And um, I go see the doctor, and they're like, well, thank God your spleen didn't burst while you were playing because you've got mononucleosis. You can't be around anybody. You just need to, like, go and lay down. And Dave Kamek, this big 20-year-old tough guy, was my roommate. And I lived in another billet family, and they were grossly overweight. The food in the house is just awful. Like, my body was just toxic, you know? And it was almost like my body was doing, like, a fast without me knowing that that's what it was trying to, like, do. And... Uh, I was out for like six weeks, bro, like bad. And I couldn't eat. I was only eating lozenges and, and trying to, I'd eat lozenges enough to drink some water so I wouldn't be dehydrated. And then I'd just go back to sleep. And I was sleeping like 20 hours a day. And I'm terrified because this is my draft year. My whole year is getting wasted. I'm like, frick, I might not even be on the team next year. Like everything in my head. And I'm praying to God. I'm doing everything. And at a certain point, uh, near the end of the six weeks, I go back and I still wasn't really healing in my spleen. It was still like two times as big and they still weren't going to let me on the ice. And I called Brent Peterson, the coach who was awesome and a mentor to me. I said, PD, I said, I can't keep laying around like this. I feel like it's just keeping me sick. I need to move my body. So he made me this Stairmaster workout plan and I go on the Stairmaster and I'd literally drive to the gym, be exhausted. I would go on the Stairmaster for like two or three minutes. I get back in my car and I'd go home. And then the next day I do like four or five minutes and then I go home. That's all I could do. And I just kept training while I was sick. And before you know it, I started getting in like sick shape and my body starts to heal itself. So I come back in and uh, it's probably like six, seven weeks later, whatever it is. And, and he's like, all right, you ready to start skating? And I'm like, yeah. So I start skating. And before you know it, we head into playoffs and Lonnie Bohannis and Adam Denmarsh were on a line. And they wanted me to go out and bang and crash. So he puts me on left wing. I'm right-handed. And I would just go in and make the first big hit. Bohannis and Denmark would grab the puck, do some magic with it, and score. And they loved it. And I got to play with these guys. Like, the only time I'm on the first line, like, the whole season and it's during playoffs. And I had a good playoffs. And um, so this is the whole key, Jason, is when I finished, I said, I need to – catch up we've got central scouting testing so i gotta like get back in shape so like when the season ended my training went like this i trained like an animal 
while everyone else is celebrating the end of the season, taking time off and partying, whatever, I ramped my training up to like one of the highest levels that ever was in my life. And when I went to central scouting testing, I destroyed it. Like scouts were all standing around watching guys and stuff. And it was in UBC and Vancouver. And uh, I just remember like nobody talking to me at the beginning. And then by the end, I had a crowd of scouts just following me around everywhere I went because I was like crushing it. And my VO2 max on the bike, which was hard at the time, was I think 69 on the bike. And, um, you know, I was still skinny, but I was really strong. And when I went to the draft, I did interviews with nine different teams. And the Canucks was the last one. And I wasn't thinking that they were in the wheelhouse. They didn't really talk to me very much. And George McPhee called me in and he goes, hey, he goes, um, if we draft you, like, what happens if you, we think you're a project? Like, we think you're going to be a while. And I said, yeah. He goes, well, what are you willing to do? I said, I'll do whatever. And he goes, well, what if you have to stay in the minors like three years? I'm like, yeah, so? Like, I'm going to make the NHL. He's like, what about like five years? I'm like, yeah. He's like, what about 10 years? I'm like, if I have to play 11 years before I play a game in the NHL, in the minors, I'll do it. So what about making money? You don't want to go to Europe and make money or anything? I go, my goal is to play in the NHL. And that's what I'm going to dedicate every day of my life to. And that's, I'm all in. And he looks at me with a big smile on his face. And he goes, that's the best answer I've heard all day. And I've interviewed like 50 guys. And he goes, I just want you to know, you finished first in the world in central scouting testing. Like nobody came close to you. Like you destroyed the testing. And he said, uh, you know, we can't build athletes, but we can build hockey players. And he didn't tell me they were going to draft me. I was there with Brad Symes, God rest his soul. He committed suicide. He's in heaven now. But um, Brad was supposed to be a first rounder. And so it was Brad and I, and we're sitting there and calling it. First round goes by. He doesn't go. Second round starts. And then they call my name. And I was expecting to go like fourth round, third round, late, late third round. So I wasn't even ready to, like, I was not even prepared. And they called my name. And I'm like, oh, my God. So, you know, you try to get yourself together. And, like, I'm freaking out. And then I go down and I meet Pat Quinn. And that was amazing. And, uh, yeah, like, the whole journey started. But if I hadn't prepared myself the way that I did, um, that wouldn't have happened. So, once again, I'm managing the things that I can manage and just trusting that the rest is going to figure itself out. So all you coaches out there, I would tell the story to your kids. I would recommend that if they take care of themselves and their fitness and their practice at home and they're shooting pucks in the backyard, I shot a hundred pucks in my backyard every day of my life um, for probably nine years straight. My dad bought me a milk crate, or actually I would collect pucks after practice. I put them in a milk crate and I had to shoot that crate every day. Rain, snow, shine, like summertime, I bring it on vacation with me. I had, a, I had multiple nets. I broke so many of those cheap nets that my dad bought me like a real net. I mean, that's the sort of level of commitment that like, I believe people need to go to that highest level. Think about it. Out of 723 players in the world, out of 7 billion people, like only 723 people get to do that job each year. Like, you think it's going to take a little bit of extra work? Like, come on, let's be, let's deal with reality here, Jason. You know how hard it is. You know how many good players 
there were so many players better than me that never made it. Like hundreds that I played with that were more skilled, more talented, whatever. But there's some pieces missing for those guys where when it, the, when it got tough, they didn't like it so much. And, and they opted a different way than all in forever kind of deal. Yeah, no, that's wild. I mean, and I, I mean, you're talking to one of those guys. I mean, me, 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 right? Like that's what's, that's why I love listening to these stories and like in that toolbox that I'm talking about that you know you had, whether that was from the upbringing or something internal that you know you went to the well with what you knew you could do, and it elevated you, you know, and you were you were willing to to make those those sacrifices and. And it's interesting, not that maybe I wasn't, and it's not really necessarily about that, but just that that all-in mentality, right? Because you did have to fight and claw for everything that you got. You know, a little different path for me, right? I was on the team. You know, I had scored 36 at 16. You know, draft year was a different scenario. And the funny thing was when I was in, when I was in, uh, in, in uh, what am I, what, what am I looking for? Doing the investigative work for this uh for this episode, I came across an old article out of Florida. They said uh, for the Panthers revisiting the 1994 NHL draft. And ironically, as ironic can be, they replaced me at 31 with you at 31. Like if Florida could do it again, they should have taken Dave Scatchard with that position instead of me, which is, which is true, right? Looking back on it now and what you did, but how funny is that, right? Like the world's world's colliding. It's a small world, but anyway. No, but what you're saying is totally true. And probably my dad being a coal miner and like a farmer and like, like he grew up in the, working on the farms. I grew up working at McDonald's. Like I paid for my own gear. Like we didn't have, like I had to fight my whole life. And like, that was just sort of what, what I had to do. Like I'm almost happier that nobody, nobody gave me anything because I, it's just, I had to fight like my whole life. Like still, even, even to build my business now and my brand now, like, I mean, I'm fighting for it and I believe in it so much. And it's like, I want, I want nothing but to do the thing that I love, which is helping people. And we'll get to that later. But it's like that fight in me, isn't going to let me be stopped. Like I could be fear of judged or like, you know, I, I could be, well, what are people going to say? Well, why do I want to listen to that guy? Like what's he got to say or where, what's his background or like this or that. Right. I don't care. Like my whole career, I can't care. I don't have enough bandwidth to care. Like I have to be all in. I don't, I can't hear all these other people talking and chirping me and bullying me and like making fun of me. Like I just don't, I can't, I can't get pulled off there. I don't have enough energy. Like it all has to be going like towards my goal. So yeah, um, it's, it's, it's funny. Like um, it all, it all is crazy. I mean, even the year before I first make the the team, I get drafted. I go to training camp. I blow up my shoulder teaching a hockey school at Enderby in Enderby, and I'm doing this 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 drill. And this goalie poke checks me, and I fly head first to the boards. I dislocate my shoulder, and camp is like training camps in like three weeks in Vancouver, and I don't tell the trainers because I don't want to be in trouble and whatever. It's a mistake. So I go in, and I'm, I'm supposed to be this huge strong guy. I can't bench because my shoulders just. <laughs> so, anyways, I I have this talk. Okay, um, I'm bouncing all over the place. I had a great camp. I showed them I could play because I couldn't hit anybody. So I had to play like a skill guy <laughs> for training camp. Pat Quinn calls me and he's like, "I thought you're way more physical than that." I'm like, Pat, I'm like my shoulders just jacked. 
I almost made the team that year. I go down and Brian Loney's got me. I write about this all in my book that I'm just finishing now. Brian Loney is in the car with me and Tyson Nash. And he Tyson goes, Nash. that's funny. That's my, that's, that's my uh, past, just past guest. That's hilarious. And Nasher and I are in this car. I'm surprised he didn't tell the story. And uh, Loney, Loney's up front in the cab. I'm in the back with Tyson. And we're like, hey, good job. Like, they told us we're going to be the first call-ups this year. Like, we're the last people cut, the last three from training camp, even though my shoulder's split. And, uh, sorry, language. (laughs) Um, Loney goes, are you guys kidding me? You guys ain't getting called up. And we look at each other like, what do you mean? Why not? He's like, the only reason he's keeping you guys around is because of how hard you work. Like, it's to push the group. It's not like you guys had like any skill or anything like you're not gonna make the nhl and we look at each other we almost start crying right i'm like what do you mean he's like no i mean it's a joke like you guys should have cut like first cut like i don't even know what you're still doing here and he was this big skill guy right so as i'm writing my book i look at the stats and i think loney i can't remember exactly but something like he played like 14 nhl games and between tice and i we had like over a thousand like 1500 like whatever right so much more. But we go back to Syracuse in the minors and Nash and I are roommates. And every day I'm like thinking about Brian Loney. I'm like, screw that guy. I'm like, let's get to the gym. And we'd be the first ones to practice. And it's just be Tyson and I. We'd be there two hours before anybody else. We'd just be lifting and lifting and lifting and staying out late. I didn't have a girlfriend, a wife. I didn't have anything. All I cared about was hockey. I lived in the hotel at the beginning. Then Tyson and I moved into this terrible place on Syracuse University campus. And then devastating news, my my heels, so my heels feel like they're cracking and while I'm in my skates, like breaking. And I'm like, what's going on? They go and do an x-ray and they find these two hollow heels. Like my heels are totally hollow, like an eggshell. And they're like, dude, you can't play. Like your heels are going to shatter. So I'm like, what do I do? So I leave my car on the street in Syracuse. My little, uh, what was it? I bought it for like 2,700 bucks. Big money for me at the time. Anyways, that car is still on the street in Syracuse. I never went back for it. I have no idea what happened to that car. I go up to Vancouver. They do surgery on my feet. Worst surgery ever. They took bone from my hip, packed it in my heel bones. I rehab the whole time. It's like June. And they go to do an x-ray. And they go, oh, my goodness, we made a mistake. There's a partition in one of the heel bones that we didn't see on the x-ray, and we only filled in, like, a quarter of the hole. So we have to break through the partition and fill in the whole hole, and we got to do the surgery over again on the second one. I lived in the Rosedale and Robson Street. I gave the bellman my key. I crawled on my hands and knees. I couldn't walk because both my feet were operated on at the same time. I gained all this weight. My parents weren't there. I was completely alone. It was so... I prayed to God for a miracle. I told him I'm going to like change everything, like all these things, right? And I wasn't a religious guy. Like I never grew up in the church or anything, but I'm just like, I need help. So um, I get my second surgery. I want to say like July. I can't even skate until August 15th and training camp is September 10th. And I go to Ronnie DeLorme before training camp and I go, Ron, I said, uh, what do I got to do to make this team? 
And he goes, Dave, we've got Pavel, we've got Mark, we've got Trevor, we've got Marty, we've got all these skill guys, but we need somebody that's going to go out there and draw penalties and somebody that's going to stick up for these guys and somebody that's going to like be really physical. Like you have a better chance of making this team than Lonnie Bohannis right now who had 50 goals in the minors yeah. because we don't need another goal scorer. We need like somebody to play physical. So I said, tell me what to do. He goes, go run everybody and fight everybody and just show that like that you're happy to do that role. So even though I hadn't done cardio, even though I hadn't skated, like barely, I did 225, 29 times in training camp for bench press. <laughs> like my upper body was strong because I could work upper body, but I couldn't work my legs or my feet. So I was physically strong. So anyways, I go into uh, training camp and I'm like on a mission to get noticed. Like if I'm not going to score, I'm going to like rock some people. So I start hitting everybody, fighting everybody. Pavel Bray's coming down the ice and Pavel is so elusive. And I hit him with one of the best hits I ever did. And he went like right through my legs. Like it was just like, I just, he didn't see me. I don't know what happened. And the whole Whistler arena goes silent. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm dead. I killed Pavel Bray, <laughs> their star guy. Gino comes over and looking at him. I'm like, if he's going to drop the gloves with me, I'm going to fight him. And he goes, hey, you can't be hitting Pavel. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't think he'd, I'd be able to. <laughs> you know I mean? So the whole arena is quiet. Pavel kind of picks himself up, gives me a dirty look. My mom and dad are in the crowd watching at Whistler Arena. Pat Quinn comes down after the scrimmage. And he goes, hey, he goes, I've never seen Pavel get hit like that. That was awesome. <laughs> so I wake up the next morning and I'm on a line centering Gino Ojek and Pavel Bure. He's my line right now. <laughs> so I go out to the scrimmage. Da, 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 I'm playing. Freaking uh, Pavel goes, just get in there, make contact. I'll get the puck and then go to the net. So we did that. I get two goals right away. Some guy kicks my wrist and slices my wrist and I'm bleeding all over the place. So I go in and, and it's training camp, right? And I'm like, Bernie, stitch us up. He's like, sketch. He's like, take the day off. Like, you're done. We'll send you to the hospital. And I'm like, stitch it up. I got, I'm going for a hat trick. He's like, it's a scrimmage. I'm like, dude, I'm not on the team. Stitch on my wrist. So he stitches up my wrist, puts on my wrist guard. I go out there. There's like three minutes left. I'm like, Pavel, I'll go back door. So got the hat trick. <laughs> like. It was a miracle that I made that freaking team. Because then we go to Japan, and, uh, like, I, I, I was definitely the extra guy until Silly's uh, ankle got cut, and then they needed me. So I had to play center. And I remember skating on my first shift, and I'm like, holy crap, man. Like, I did it. Like, everything everything that I worked so hard for, like, nobody can take this away. I've got a game played in the NHL. Like, huh. It was like crazy. Like every single visualization and me seeing myself playing and me working so hard and me shooting all those pucks and running in the woods and riding the bike and like working when nobody is watching, like all of it was like, it's like right there. I did it. So that's super cool. Did you, so did you didn't have to fight Gino then? Gino didn't, didn't, no, didn't make it drop the gloves? gloves. No. And, um, Gino and I became actually really great friends. He's one of the nicest guys on the team to me when I wasn't really on the team. Um, and uh, I had the ankle surgery. So after a while, I could use crutches and I went out drinking a couple of times with Pavel and Gino. <laughs> and uh, before that, before I made the team. So I wasn't on Syracuse, but I wasn't on Vancouver. I was kind of yeah. like in limbo. 
So maybe that's why he he took. What it a wild time. world, though, that I interviewed Nasher last week for this, and you have such a connection with him, and and also a very similar story, which which was crazy because he blew up Pavel Dimitra on his first shift at St. Louis camp when he was like, you know, I, I, there was no more woulda, coulda, shouldas. And he kind of went in with the same mentality. It sounds like you had that he was just going to get noticed. He was going to make a difference. Steamrolled Dimitra, broke, like sent him out and he had to fight Kelly Chase that same shift. And his coach wouldn't let him off the ice. It was a, a wild story. And, uh, and anyways, but I mean, again, a, a guy who was just prepared to do what, at whatever was needed to do to uh, to get noticed, to make a difference, and and to have an impact, and yeah, that's really impressive, man. So you went from playing a half season of pro, getting knocked out because of your ankle, because of your heels, and then c- coming back and actually making that team out of uh, out of camp, and essentially you were an NHLer for the next ten years. Yeah, right. Like it's crazy. Um, I'm so blessed. I'm so lucky. But I also earned it. Yeah. Hundred percent, you did. I did stuff that no nobody wanted to do. Yeah. At what yeah. point did you? Uh, I mean, I see one hundred sixty-five pims that first year too. You you mentioned you 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 grew into yourself at some point. You you came, you were a hundred sixty-five pound boy and turned into be probably whatever a two twenty-five pound man. I would I would assume uh, with all that effort in the gym. Did you? Did you? You mentioned about the fighting earlier too. Was that something that had to be part of your toolbox there, your first few years to, um, you know, to, to to keep that spot and to earn that place? Yeah, yeah. If I didn't do that, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made it. And and that actually gave me enough time to let my skills catch up. So like when I went to, I led the Islanders in scoring a couple of years later with twenty seven goals. Like, I mean, how does that happen? Like, I had no business skill wise really being in the NHL because I was still learning. And um, I'd had all these starts and stops with the mono and all these like different things where I wasn't really like developing my skill set. So I needed a year or two to get my skills caught up to like my physicality. And then when I went to New York, I had a chance to play a lot and I got ice time. And um, yeah, I mean, that 27 goal year was incredible. I had two hat tricks in a month in the NHL, like more, more goals than Alexi Yashin, who was making whatever he was making there. That, that, that year. That's pretty awesome. And then the, here's the ironic thing, right? It's like next year, Laviolette took over as coach. And then I started on the fourth line again. And it's like, I never stood up for myself. Cause I was like a team guy. I didn't want to rock the boat. I thought it was going to change. I thought they're going to see it. And like, like there's so many of these little nuances where I could have made it stuck up for myself or, or, rock the boat a little bit more where I think it seemed like, you know, those guys would, the squeaky wheel would get the grease. And, um, you know, I'm not saying for kids to go out there and um, like complain to coaches. That's not what I'm saying, but I had earned that right to be a second liner or first liner, like with 27 goals, like I showed I could do it. And part of my old programming was I'm just lucky to be here. So I don't want to like rock the boat. And, uh, there comes a point where you have to stand up for yourself. That's what I did with the fighting too. I had to stand up for myself. Actually, this is great advice. And um, I didn't understand it. I don't think I really executed it properly, but Mark Messier mentored me a lot. And uh, we were really good friends when we were on the Canucks. And he said, Sketch, he's like, if you're going to be in this league for the next decade, like you have to do something crazy your first year. Like, I don't care if you cross check somebody's teeth out or you like, like go nuts and just start 
killing guys. Like he goes, but if you can do it your first year, you don't have to fight as much the rest of your career. And I never got it. Like I didn't, I did it. I fought a lot, but I didn't really do it like the way that he told me to do it. I think there was a better way of doing it. And I remember like a guy like Garnet X will be like one punch the guy with the left. And like, I saw that and it was one of his first years and the rest of my career, I kind of always had that picture in the back of my head. And this is a lot before the internet and stuff like now, but I'm like, man, if I would have done something really crazy my first year, I think I would have had to fight less moving forward because people think I'm crazy. Right. Like the perception is reality, really. Yeah. Sure. So I'm like, interesting, like not for you kids to go out there and do crazy stuff, but if this is going to be your living doing this in a league for a decade, you might as well have people like kind of have their head on a swivel when you're out there. And I think I did that with my hitting. I don't really think I did it with my fighting. You know, I was like kind of a middleweight type of guy. So two, two, two things are before we get into maybe the Islanders. And one is, you mean, being a, being a salmon arm kid and a BC boy and then playing for the Canucks. I mean, how cool that must've been, you know, and, and what that meant to you. And then also I want to talk about the trade because that was mid season uh, you had never been traded up to that point. You played all your time in Portland. That's a that's a big deal, and and uh, I'm sure it was for you too because it was a, it was a it was a pretty big deal for that team, that organization. Uh, just how you dealt with that midseason, going to a new team. So one, how was it playing for the Canuckers as a BC kid, and and two, what what was what was the time like around that trade? Playing with the Canucks was a dream come true. Um, I didn't realize how good it was going to be like after I got drafted until like it was really happening, like nothing changed. Like all my friends from Salmon Arm moved down to UBC to go to school when they were 20. And that's when I was like going to the league. So like they were there with me. So there's this crappy bar, I think it's called the pit up at UBC. And I remember, like I told you, I was making 275 Canadian. I went up to the pit. Like if we didn't have a day off a game the next day or anything after a game, I'd go up to the pit and then my buddies would be there and I buy drinks for everybody. And then like, it would be like 25 cent shot night and I'm in the NHL and I'm 20 or what, 21, whatever. So like, I think I'm rich. So, so like I'd buy the whole bar, like shots and it cost me like 20 bucks. You know what I mean? So like, that's pretty fun. You know what I mean? And I'm not encouraging kids to go out there and drink anything, but it's like, you know, I was an adult and it was a silly fun decision. And I would go back and I just sleep on my buddy's couches in the dorm. And like Matthias Olin, the, best players ever was my roommate i mean i started off i was renting a house in vancouver for 400 dollars a month of peter shaper's aunt and uncle and it was a basement suite out by burnaby eight rings and it was just a terrible thing like you'd sit in the toilet and your feet would be in the shower it's just like gross right i'm in the nhl you know but i'm not sure if i'm really there or if i'm gonna get sent down so i don't want to like spend any money so um matthias and i were hanging out every day because we're both 20 or 21, whatever it was. And uh, at one point he had a little townhouse on um, um, uh, Marina side Crescent in downtown Vancouver, Yale town. And we, we'd go out, we'd have dinner and sometimes I'd stay the night at his second bedroom. He's like, do you want to just stay here? Like, yes, please. (laughs) So nobody ever told me to get a house. Like, you know, usually they come up and they're like, Hey, congratulations. Like you made it. Nobody ever told me that. So I never felt like I was really on the team for like ever. Um, and then like mess was awesome. He was like, he was like such a good mentor and he taught me so many things. Um, brash, like Aubrey like he's a good guy to learn. Um, Brad may, I played with so many great leaders, uh, and they would teach me things. Um, cause I didn't really know what I was doing. 
like to be honest, I was strong and I was fearless and I just do say yes to everybody, but like I didn't really know how to fight. I never, I'm not a fighter. Like I hate fighting really. So for me to be doing that as part of my role, I would do anything to make it. But also um, it did give me time to establish myself as a real player later on. So, it, you know, I had to say, I had to do stuff nobody wanted to do. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. And how about that trade? So talk about that trade now. You get traded oh. with uh, with Weeksy and with Bill McCalt. Yeah. Um, and I can figure who comes back the other way. But um, well, but what was that like? Okay. So it's December 21st or 22nd. Um, trade deadline is the next day. Um, Mark Crawford took over as the coach. And for whatever reason, I had like decent first year or second year. But Crow took over as the coach. And... Um, um, Pat, uh, sorry, uh, Brian Burke later on told me the story, but I guess he gave Berkey a list of guys that he didn't want on the team, like that he didn't think fit in. And it was me, Mucky, and Kevin Weeks. And Mark Crawford, like, um, I don't have a lot of great things to say about the guy, and I don't talk bad about anybody, but I just, I judge people by how they treat normal people, and he wasn't a nice guy to the security guards. He wasn't a nice guy to the trainers. He was, he was, he was not a good dude. And when he took over, I stopped playing. I was a healthy scratch, like over and over and over again. And he hadn't even given me really a chance. Um, I remember one game against Colorado, his old team. Um, he had a hard on for him and he was trying to like do whatever he could to beat him. And it was the second period. <laughs> this is a funny story. Oh, I should put this in my book. Hang on. I'm going to make a note. This is a really funny story. Hang on. Okay. So I'm sitting on the bench. It's the second period. Joe Sackick's out on the ice. He had just called my, we're a home team. So it's my first shift of the game, mid-second period. Crow's like, all right, Sketch, you're out there. So I jump out on the board. So I'm all excited. And Sackick's line, it's a TV timeout. Sackick's line comes on. He's like, he calls us off. So we go off the we go off the ice. The game's two two. Um, it's the third period with eighteen minutes to go, and I haven't had a shift yet. So it's me, Troy Crowder, and Gino Ojek on the line. Okay, game's two two. I look over. Troy Crowder's skates are completely undone, like laces all the way out, all the way off. And I'm like, crowds, your skates are undone. He's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like. Dude, what if he calls her name? And he goes, hey, Skash, you can take your skates off too. <laughs> and he goes, right. Zero shifts. Zero games played. Doesn't count. If I would have got to 399 and back in the day, 400 games meant full pension. If I would have got to 399 games, like I took warm-up, I took morning skate, I took pregame, I did everything, but I never got one shift on the ice. Like, that's not fun, right? So I called my agent and and my agent called Berkey and Berkey is like, this guy just won't give him a chance. He's like, he doesn't want him here. Uh, and my agent said, okay, well, let's ask for a trade. And I said, okay, the only thing I ask is that I get to spend Christmas with my mom and dad because they're in Salmon Arm and I never get Christmas with my family. And uh, then, then after, trade me. And then, so we're at the, Ed Jovanovsky's house in Vancouver, big party everyone's having a great time we're down in the basement shooting pool back then i don't think there were cell phones or cell phones were just coming out whatever and ed's house phone rings 
We're partying. We're shooting pool. His wife comes down. Eddie, phone's for you. Joe Bo goes up, grabs the phone. I'm in the middle of a pool game. And, like, I start turning down the, the, the music because trade deadlines the next day. And uh, Joe Bo comes down. He's like, uh, Scatch, phone's for you. And I'm like, huh? Hello. He's like, yeah, Scatch, is Berkey. Uh, we just traded you to the Islanders. Um, you guys are going to be on the first flight out tomorrow. Um, and I'm just like in shock. And I'm like, oh, like, well, it is what it is. So then um, he goes, is, uh, is Kevin there? Is Weeksy there? And I go, yep. He goes, can you hand the phone to him? And I'm like, Weeksy. And the whole room's like silent. Music is all off. All the guys, all the wives are just staring, right? And I'm like just getting my stuff together, trying to get out of there as fast as possible. Peter Schaefer's my roommate at the time. He's crying. Uh, so then Weeksy... Weeks, he's like, where am I going? What? For who? What? And then he comes over and Mucky's like, hey, Weeksy, it's going to be okay there, big guy. Like, shake it off. You know, you're going to go there. You're going to get lots of ice time. And Weeks, he goes, Mucky, phone's for you. <laughs> and Mucky's like, what? Uh, Bill McCall, he was like a great player, but he is mentally a little like softer, you know? And uh, his aunt lived there. He had lots of good ties to Vancouver. And he was devastated. He was devastated. So we show up at the we show up at the airport and there's all these media the next day and like you just go home and pack all your stuff that you can into hockey bags and stuff. You know how it is. It sucks. And uh, equipment, goalie pads, weeksies pads, everything. We got all this stuff. We get there, we get checked in, do all our exit interviews through the you know, sports net and all that stuff. We're on the plane and we're flying to New York. New York's the last in the league. They're owned by the league. Uh, some guy bought the team with no money and he's in jail. I mean, it's a disaster. And we're like, well, hopefully we get to play, you know? We show up. Nobody's there to pick us up. There's no media. There's nothing. Nobody could give a flying, you know what? <laughs> like, <laughs> so we're trying to call Milbury. I call Milbury. It sounds like he's half drunk, you know? And he's like, oh, uh, yeah, just, just get a limo and bring me the receipt. And I'm like, we got a lot of stuff. And he's like, well, get a stretch. So this crappy stretch limo that from the airport from the airport shows up and it's just awful. We're shoving all our pads in and all our suits and all our bags and all our sticks. Everything's full. And then the back row, the like the three-seater, like all three of us are squashed on it. We drive through McDonald's, grab like all this crap, like Big Macs, everything, because nothing's open. It's like 11 o'clock at night, you know, whatever. We go, we check into the Long Island Marriott, which you know is just like the worst. And I check into my lumpy bed. And I went from like Vancouver, like the penthouse, just like the outhouse in Long Island. It's another turning point, okay? So next day we play. And we're playing, um, it's the last day before Christmas break. And we're playing, uh, I think, Pittsburgh. And we're losing. And the game is like uh, winding down. And the team's kind of like okay with it. You know what I mean? And I'm like, this is such a bad vibe compared to where we were with a leader like Mass in, 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 in Vancouver. And it wasn't really like a leadership role or a strong leadership in the island. So like we're losing three nothing. I'm like, I gotta get something, I gotta do something. And like I I looked across the ice with this guy named Leach, I think his name was from Pittsburgh. I'm like, you wanna go? Like it's my first game here. I got to do something. He's like, yeah, I'll go. And like, I beat the tar out of him. And I'm looking over at the bench being like, 
Like, screw you guys. Like, we're not just going to roll over and let teams just steamroll us every game. And, like, I wanted to – I did. I purposely did that to, like, try to shift the energy and try to change, like, what was acceptable and what was the standard. And, like, two years later, we were a playoff team. And I'm not saying it had a lot to do with me, but, like, we all started to take on a personality. Like, we're not just going to roll over and play dead and, like – collect a check that's not what it's about so yeah that is a tough scenario you know with uh i mentioned that drafted by florida they'd gone to the cup uh the year before i was my first year pro and then got traded that year to toronto who hadn't been in the playoffs in a long time uh and then got traded to the kings who hadn't been in the playoffs in a long time signed as a free agent with the islanders who hadn't been in the playoffs in a long time and uh and then ended in detroit and it was it really really crazy how like you said, like the standards and the way things are done, it just feels way different. And you saw that in a night and day contrast from what was going on in Vancouver um, to, to the island. I mean, you're in the same league, but it doesn't even feel like it, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, it's and, crazy. And, and, and then to be a part of that and to become, uh, you know, to become a playoff team, that was one thing I did notice, which I'm sure you probably, you know, of course you wish would have been different, but not too much playoff experience in all those years of playing. Just couldn't couldn't find a team that that, that ran deep. You know what? I um, I had like a few goals to be like for the NHL. Like I wanted to get drafted. I wanted to play a game in the NHL. I wanted to make a million dollars in the NHL. Like these are all goals I made when I was like fourteen or something. I wanted to score a goal in the NHL. I want to win a Stanley Cup. Um, I did want to play in the Olympics too, though. It's like a childhood goal. I didn't get the cup and I didn't get the Olympics. Um, but I got I got everything else. And, um, you know, I tried to go. So I could have signed a five-year deal with Toronto. I could have signed a four-year deal for another $2 million if I would have signed with the Rangers. And I chose to sign with Boston as a free agent. And my whole, this is another thing, right? Like I should have been more greedy for myself. But I tried to go to win the Stanley Cup. Rangers hadn't made the playoffs in eight years. I was a free agent for the first time in my career after like, decent you know um i had five offers nashville toronto rangers boston somebody else was in the mix for a bit and looking back on it i should have probably signed with the rangers or toronto but i tried to win a cup by going to boston and i bought a brownstone across from tom brady and like i'm infiltrating myself in the city and i'm on pace for like maybe 20 goals something like that like playing okay um and we had a couple of injuries to defense and Patrice Bergeron was kind of the fourth line guy. I was the third line guy and he was playing good as a rookie. And it, and, and we needed a D man and Phoenix called and they said I was the guy and I was kind of expendable, but I just signed a four year deal there. Like I could have had no, no trade clauses, every other team except for Boston. And my gut was trying to win a cup. Like I was like, I don't care about the money. I don't care. I tried to do it for the right reasons. Like they just re-signed Thornton. They just re-signed Glenn Murray, Andrew Raycroft. So I'm like, these guys are going for it. So like, if I'm going to be somewhere, I want to win. And once again, I put myself back burner a little bit to try to do the right thing for the team. And it's another regret that I had. Like it's a little bit of a regret because I was going to be assistant captain with the Rangers. I was going to have a five-year deal in Toronto. And like, I'm like, well, Rangers haven't made it in eight years. Toronto's not doing very good. I want to win a cup. Right? And it's weird. It's a decision. It's all destiny. It's all perfect. But I kind of wonder what would have happened if I would have went 
to Nashville or to the Rangers or Toronto because Boston just punted me after 14 games. And I was like crazy right after a free agent signing, which would have been a, you know, relatively big deal for them. I don't know who else they signed that year, but it was very rare that, uh, you know, that, that you get a 16 game audition and all of a sudden they're filling your, you're filling your role with, uh, you know, with, with a defenseman there. I think it was Tanabe, right. That you got traded for. David Tanabe. I was so shocked. I had to fly the next morning. They did, they sent, they didn't even send a real trainer. They just sent a stick boy to grab my gear from Boston garden. And I had to fly to San Francisco, take a limo, and then show up for pregame meal with Wayne Gretzky pulling out a seat beside me. He's the coach, my idol. He's like, welcome to the team. And I'm like, thanks. And I had a goal in a fight that night against uh, Scott Thornton. Kind of worked me. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, well, now I'm in another city. My wife's back in Boston. Like, it, it's just crazy, dude. Like, it's there's no time to, like, think about anything. You just got to play. But like, there's no other job that they're like, okay, well, grab a bag, transport yourself. We'll figure it all out later. Like, and then you're in the action. There's not many jobs like that. And people don't ever hear about those trades and those things. No, I know. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've told, I've told my, my first draft day, my, my first trade story on like, it was, I was gone three, legitimately three hours after the phone call, like the same day I was asleep in the minor, in my minor league bed. And I was on a and I was on a flight. Never saw that place again. Obviously, like left half my stuff there. You know, my car. Um, like it was it was nuts. My car was still in Florida from when I got sent down because they told me to bring my car up. And so my car was in Florida. All my stuff was in Greensboro. Then like three hours later, I'm in Toronto. The guy I get traded for is driving my car around Miami. <laughs> <laughs> Mahler was using my car for. But yeah, but it's nuts, right? I mean, that's I didn't have a family or anything. I could imagine having kids and having to do that, but it's. It's totally crazy. And, you, and your mindset must have been like so ready to just grow roots in Boston, right? Like this is going to be where I'm going to be for a while. And I was literally like picking charities that I could work with for the next four years. I was meeting all the restaurant owners. Like I lived right in Back Bay and Com Ave and all that stuff. Like best spot. I'm making friends. I'm like, okay, who do I want to support for the next four years with my time and my energy for charity? Like charity works big to me. And like, I'm in like, I'm like, this is going to be a great four years. My wife could still, she's a model. She could go back and forth to New York if she wanted. So it's like close enough. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be great. And then ironically, they did win a cup a couple of years later. Like my gut was sort of right in their foundation they were building, but you know, you wonder why couldn't I have just stayed there and I won a cup, but right. it's, that wasn't part of the plan. And right. listen, it's perfect. I live in right. Scottsdale now. Like, I mean, it's all, everything's perfect, even when it doesn't feel like it is. A hundred percent, right? It might not be the opportunity that we originally had in our sites, but there's something else that's going to present itself that, you know, that that can be, that can be the little game changer that we didn't, we weren't expecting. And that's, I mean, I don't know if you would care to come back. I know that we, we talked about kind of a timeline here. We're almost 90 minutes in, and I think maybe this is a good time to stop and we can do part two because I want to talk about, the adversity with the concussions. And I want to talk about your time away from the game and then coming back again in your thirties, like to, to, to make the league and like all those choices. And I think that's an episode in of itself. And I know you'd probably agree. So with, with your uh, approval, do you think it's a good time to cut and we can get you, bring it back another time? Yeah, I think, I think it would be, um, cause I don't want to do it a disservice. Like it's, it's a pretty crazy story. Nobody really knows. Um, 
it, it's it's going to need some time. So let's let yeah, it. I want to give it some time. I don't want to rush through it. And I and I know uh, you know there's only so much that people can can can, uh, can listen to in one sitting. So I mean, I, I I love everything that you've talked about already. And uh, and yeah, I mean, what great what great messaging. Uh, so many, so many awesome things here that people can just pick up and learn from, apply to whatever it is they're, that they're doing. Let alone these young athletes who want to be NHL players. So, uh, Sketch, uh, as always, entertaining. I, I can't believe your memory, by the way. Like, uh, even after the concussions, too. Like, my gosh, I'm, you, you, you seem like you just have this crystal ball memory of of, of all these different events, and I <laughs> do not share that skill with you. I, I wish I remembered. Uh, as much as you did but I, I really love the stories and uh, can't wait to hear a few more next time we have you awesome buddy well thank you and keep doing the good the good work you're doing and uh anything you need you got it buddy i appreciate it man appreciate it till next time okay bye thank you once again for sticking around till the end i really appreciate your time uh i hope you got as much of that episode with dave as i did uh there's there's just Success leaves clues, as they say, right? And Dave Scatcherd, I played with him or against him in junior. Uh, I saw the type of player that he was, and I would not have guessed he would have played 659 games in the NHL. And that shows you what I knew, uh, and that shows you where my head was at the time. I thought that, you know, as he said, like the, I thought the best players played in the NHL, and the best players to me, to me, meant the most talented, the most skilled. Uh, and that wasn't the case. That's not always the case. And not that Dave wasn't skilled; he went on to go score 27 goals in the NHL. But that wasn't what got him into the NHL, and that wasn't the reason that got him drafted. He was prepared to go above and beyond to be a guy that they just could not say no to. And that is where the fire is at. Just be the guy that they can't say no to. Don't give any type of reason. And uh, and I think that lesson, you know, that runs through anything, whether it be school or whether it be uh, profession or business or corporate world, uh, or or being a tradesman. If you want to do something and you want to go all in and you don't give a rip about what anyone else thinks, there's some special things that goes on there. And like he said, for him, it seemed every time he made those hard decisions that the universe seemed to open up a little bit and you kind of would align for him, right? That that problems would, would get out of the way and his, his single-minded focus would just, would just allow him to get the job done. And boy, I mean, I, I have so much respect for guys like Dave who are able to find that way, who are able to carve out their niche, who are, and we're able to make a career out of doing something that's really, really, really hard. And now he's doing it again as, as a high performance coach. And, uh, and I just love what he's all about. He's got a lot of passion, he's got a lot of fire. He's able to, to tell these stories with such a memory that just blows me away, which I absolutely love. And I hope you liked it as much as I did because we are going to bring back Dave for round two, like I said, part two, where we can get into his really dark times uh, with the concussions and him not being able to play with his kids and not wanting to leave the basement and, and, uh, and all these, these things that he was having to go through to then find the light and to get back on the horse and to actually make a run at the greatest league in the world for a second time uh, when I'm sure he had a ton of doubters out there and a ton of haters that didn't think he was going to be able to do it. So we will talk about that. Uh, I'm not sure at what point, but we'll bring him back. And uh, yeah, until next time, everybody, make sure you play hard. Keep your head up. <laughs>